All right, we're going to be in Mark 4 today. All right, I want to open today by looking at Jonah chapter 1. Now, in the life of Jesus, there are several occasions where, for instance, um, Jesus' birth narrative, it mimics Moses. It, it, Moses' life was a foreshadowing of what would come in Messiah. And so we see a, a lot of similarities between Jesus and, and Moses. Um, there's just moments in Jesus' life where we see Old Testament stories, we can recognize how they foreshadowed and maybe taught us something about Jesus. As we read from Jonah this morning, I want to show you a foreshadowing, and it's actually a um, kind of a reversal of a narrative that happened in the life of Jonah. I'll show you all that in a second. Jonah chapter 1, verse 7 through 15. They said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. And so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is it that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to them, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And, and he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this grace tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to try to get back to dry land for they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked Jonah up and they hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from raging. Now remember, Jonah was called to preaching in Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, the most wicked Gentile city in the earth. And Jonah being the rebellious prophet that he was, rather than going to Nineveh, he went down to the port at Joppa. He got on a boat and he ran in the wrong direction. We're told in Jonah 1 verse 4 through 5, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah was down in the inner part of the ship had lain down and fallen fast asleep. Now it's very likely that Jonah in his distress, you know, you can't run from God for too long without feeling exhausted. Some of you guys are depressed and lonely and tired and anxious. I would suggest stop running from God. So Jonah's worn out. He goes down in the ship and he passes out. And the, the scripture says that the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. So there was a supernaturally charged storm that began to shake the boat. Now these mariners are these, these men who, who brought goods from one port to the next. They did not have an anti-supernatural materialistic worldview that you and I grew up in. So when this storm comes upon them, they know this has something to do with the gods. So they begin to talk to one another. Which one of you have sinned? Who didn't bring an offering to your God? Whose fault is this? The gods are judging us. Eventually they wake Jonah up. They say, we can't figure this thing out. They're throwing cargo over the board. They're in total panic. This storm is, is beyond natural phenomena. And they're sure that there's some supernatural being frustrated with them. They wake Jonah up. And Jonah says, I'm a Hebrew. I serve the God of Israel. I I serve the God who made the earth and the sea. 
And they knew that this was the issue. There was a rebellious prophet in the belly of the ship. And Jonah says, you're going to have to throw me over. So they start to row. They're thinking, man, we don't want to kill somebody. Next week, we'll all be in a storm. And so, so finally, Jonah convinces them to cast lots. And finally, they hurl Jonah over. And immediately, the storm stops. Immediately, the storm ceases. Now, as we read our text today, I want to show you that it's very likely, and a lot of commentators agree, that what we find in the life of Jesus today is the antithesis of what happened in the life of Jonah. In the life of Jonah, there was a supernaturally charged storm that was to cause the people on the ship to recognize that there was a rebellious man on board and he needed to be thrown over. Now, obviously you remember the great fish swallows him. But today as we read, as Jesus is fast asleep in the ship in a, in a storm that seems supernaturally charged, the, everyone on boat stirred up and anxious and, and it's, it's just in the minds of, of this, in this worldview, this first century worldview, it's in the minds of everyone on the boat, the gods or, or the, for the Hebrews, Yahweh, someone is frustrated with us. Then they, and I think they start to think, what did we do? Who is it on the boat that's rebellious? And, and you remember, I'll show you again, that just weeks before, the scribes and the Pharisees came down from Jerusalem, the greatest scholars of the day, and they said, hey, just so you guys know, this Jesus that you're following, he's demonic. Now there's a storm raging. This feels like Jonah. And there's a doubt in the mind of the apostles about Jesus and who he is. They're still not sure. And so they wake Jesus up and they say, get up, don't you care? And Jesus, rather than saying, throw me in the water because I'm the rebellious one. Jesus actually rebukes the storm just like he would a demon. And the, the English is so way too casual. The English says, peace be still. But the Greek, the doublet here reads more like, shit, sit down and shut up. That was a slip of the tongue if you heard it, forgive me. <laughs> sit and shut, sit and shut. <laughs> forgive me, Lord, for I have... Sit, sit, shut, shut, sit. I got it. All right. The, the language, now y'all stop. The language is, is, so they wake Jesus up in the middle of this storm that feels chaotic and crazy. And rather than saying, throw me over, Jesus gets up and says, be quiet. He is, he is not the prophet out of God's will that is being judged by the storm, but he is the perfect son of God totally in his father's will who just stands up and says, be quiet. And I think he went and laid back down. And, and what we're finding is this antithesis of Jonah, right? The, the opposite of the rebellious prophet being judged. We now have the prophet in perfect obedience, the son of God who commands storms. Now let's read the text and we're going to, we're going to yak for a while. Okay. We're going to do our best in Jesus name to keep profanity out of this pulpit. Mark 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 35 through 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose. And the waves, they were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. 
And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and the sea and said, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They were filled with great fear. And they asked the question, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? I want to ask you as we start to just for a second, step away from every sermon you've heard preached about Jesus being in your boat and calming your storms. We'll get to that kind of application, but, but that is not the thrust of the text. The thrust of the text lies in these words. They were filled with great fear. The thrust of the text lies in the idea that the anxiety and panic they had surrounding the storm was so surpassed and stomped on and overwhelmed by the fear, terror, and dread that they now carried in their hearts concerning Jesus. Again, remember the context of the narrative. Just for a minute, we're told it starts with on that same day. So we read before, this is day. Jesus is teaching from a boat. There are thousands and thousands of people. We read in Mark 2 and 3 that everywhere Jesus went, he was pressed and crushed by people. He couldn't eat when he would try to eat. People would come interrupt him for prayer. And so it's likely, there there are one of two possibilities. Jesus either said, let's go across to the other side because he intended to do ministry there, which is likely. The other possibility is that Jesus is tired. He's exhausted. It's a good reason to take a nap in the boat. And so Jesus says at this point, we're going to have to, we're, we're going to break away. We're going to go to the other side and I'm going to take a breather for a minute. There is such a thing as a Holy Ghost nap. Now, as Jesus goes to bed, they're going across the Sea of Galilee and this storm just falls down upon them. Now we know from the topography of this area that it's not unlikely that storms kind of come out of nowhere on the Sea of Galilee and they can be crazy and chaotic. And remember that we got Peter, James, and John in the boat. And these we've got multiple fishermen in the boat who have fished this, this, it's actually kind of a lake, for the entirety of their lives. They know this area well. And in the middle of the storm, they are totally panicked. Now, I don't know if you've ever been on a boat when things start to go wrong, but it gets a little wild. It was probably like three years ago now, maybe two years ago now, we had this little beater ski boat. It was a beater with a hard R. And uh, it didn't run very well. You know, I kind of rigged that thing up with rubber bands and duct tape, and it was moving. And we got to the dock. One of our kids started throwing up. Ike started throwing up on the boat. And so I had to take my shirt off, which I don't like to do because my muscles are so big that everyone gets intimidated. So I don't do that that often. It's either that or I need to lose weight. I can't remember which one. Um, and so I take my shirt off. I'm catching my, my wife and I are catching vomit with the shirt. And then we go back to the dock and it's Sunday afternoon and it's slammed. So I'm trying to park this ski boat straight on just to get the kids off. You know how this old ski boats have that round glass in the front. So I've got to jump the glass. I'm driving. I pull up. I've got to jump the glass, grab the rope and get on the dock. But in the process, I missed the rope. So now I'm on the dock and I kick the boat away with all my kids And Haley, who's in total panic, total panic. And Haley is so scared of boats that she doesn't know how to do anything on the boat, anything. And the kids, 
I think I think Lottie, our, our now four-year-old, was maybe two. She was Peter in this moment. And she was screaming, Mom, drive the boat, Mom. Drive the boat, Mom. Mom, drive the boat. And she did not drive the boat. She drifted away. Until she drifted in someone's private boat slip. And I had to run down the road. Again, with my muscles or jiggling. One of the way I'm not to the spot to go get her. Now, you're on a boat and stuff starts to go wrong. There's chaos, okay? Chaos. And so imagine there, we know from the fishing boats from this era, archaeologists have found some, some fishing boats from this era. And if you can imagine the side wall of the boat, it, it kind of had a big cut in it. It got really low and that's where they would drop the nets over. So they had a really low wall so that they can kind of fling their nets over. And so in this storm, the text tells us that the boat is starting to fill, so now we're in raging waves with a low wall and the boat's filling. So now you can imagine they're trying to bail water. There, someone's yelling at Peter saying, I told you, I told you not to do this in the middle of the night. They're totally freaked out. And, and the leader is napping. The disciples naturally begin to panic. They begin to yell and shake. And finally, someone grabs Jesus, wakes him up and says, don't you care that we're perishing? And that Greek there means, don't you care that we're about to die, that we're being destroyed, that we're falling apart? Jesus, I don't know if you've ever been woken up from a nap, but I'm not happy. Not happy. Jesus rises. He rebukes the storm. And again, he speaks to the storm uh, in the exact language that he would a demonic entity. And, and he, he says, uh, what we get is peace be still, that's a doublet in, in Greek and Hebrew, actually. Um, for instance, when, we, when the angels fall down and cry, holy, 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 that, that thrice holy, um, there, every time there's an extra holy added, there's greater emphasis. Does that make sense? So Jesus will say to Martha, Martha, Martha. She's getting their attention, adding emphasis. This peace be still is a doublet. It's, it's an emphatic, authoritative statement. And again, the, the peace be still is a little soft the way that the language actually comes through. It is a little more like, um, this is harsh, so forgive me. It's a, it's a little more like, shut up. Sit down and be quiet. Now imagine Jesus got up from his nap. He's tired and he tells the storm, shut up, sit down. And then he looks at everybody and says, what's wrong with you? Now, I, I want to show you quickly that in ancient Near Eastern culture, water holds a specific mysterious, dark, chaotic place in the hearts of, of people, uh, and, and even in the scriptures. So for instance, in Genesis 1-2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Darkness, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Watch this, Revelation 21, 1-3, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So, so beasts are being hurled into the sea, and then when all is said and done, the scripture says that the sea will be no more. Now, all of you moved to the coast at some point for a reason, and you're going, Jesus, why don't we have an ocean? In our modern minds, we're going, we need an ocean, God. But in the mind of the first century believer and, and, and prior, when you're talking about even um, ancient Babylonian text, the, the sea was a place of danger. It was a place of chaos. We have these nice little things where we open our apps to see if there's going to be a storm or not today. And yesterday it was real windy, so we weren't going to go out on the water. They didn't have it. They, they obviously knew how to read weather patterns to an extent. But they could get out on the sea and be in total chaos, destroyed. The sea becomes this place of mysterious, dark, 
even evil in, in ancient um, creation narratives. So in a lot of pagan creation narratives, which we obviously don't believe, just trying to show you the cultural context, um, the pagan gods are somehow trying to tame the ocean and the beast within the ocean. So, so listen to this. Job is kind of pouring his heart out to God. Do you remember? A lot of scholars believe that Job was the first book written in the Old Testament. It's very old. Job's pouring his heart out to God and, and saying, why are you judging me? Why is this, my life falling apart? What have I done? And then God begins to respond. You remember this and rebuke Job? And he says this. The Lord rebukes Job and says, did you tame Leviathan? Now, Leviathan in, in ancient Middle Eastern uh, creation narratives, worldviews of Leviathan, were, it represented great beast in the ocean, great, dark, violent beast. And he said, did you tame Leviathan, the great beast of the depths of the sea? Did you, listen to this, did you bring order to great darkness and the chaos of the deep? Job, did you bring order to the chaos of the deep? And so again, in, in all these pagan narratives, there are gods and multiple gods who are rising up as the sea tosses and turns. And so when Jesus steps on the boat and says to the ocean, shut up, I'm taking a nap. The people in the boat are not just going, oh, thank God, there was a great storm that, you know, the weather app didn't pick up. The people in the boat are going, That's, there's something dark and demonic that takes place in the depths of the sea. And by God, he just told it to shut up. And it did. And, and then we begin to arise at the actual emphasis of the text, which again is not the first emphasis of the text, maybe a secondary cause. The first emphasis of this, this narrative is not, Jesus will rebuke all the storms in my life. The first emphasis of this narrative is, you ought to be terrified of him. The first emphasis of the narrative is, who is this man that silences even the raging sea? When God says to Job, did you tame the deeps? Job's obvious answer is, of course not. But you say to Jesus, do you tame the deeps? And his obvious answer is, yes. Now don't wake me up again. The response of the disciples is twofold. And I want to suggest to you that on Palm Sunday, this maybe is the greatest response that we can meditate upon. The response of the disciples is twofold. First, they respond with fear and trembling. They were afraid. And the Greek there shows us that this type of fear that they're now experiencing far surpasses the anxiety uh, of the storm that they once held. They are deathly afraid of who? Not the pagan deities that they thought might be causing storms. They're deathly afraid of Jesus. They're going, what? I understand that just a few weeks ago, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees called him demonic, but he's just telling the depths, the, the raging water, he's just telling it to, to shut up? Have we lost fear in the church? Have we painted Jesus as such a casual entity? Have we reshaped and recreated God into our own image that we look at Jesus and forget that he just spoke creation into existence? The anxiety of the waves is crushed by terror. Secondly, they begin to ponder the question. Now, this is the question that the entire Gospel of Mark wants you to ask. This is the meta-narrative question. Again, the, 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 the Gospel hinging on Mark 8 when Jesus says, Who do you say that I am? Now we're in the concluding Mark 4. We get the 
the question. They ask, who is this? Even the wind and sea obey him. Who is this? Your, your theology cannot be mere philosophical arguments and jargon where you sit around coffee and talk about whether or not you believe God's omniscient or, or, or whether or not you believe that God is sovereign over all things. Your theology can't be jargon. At some point, your theology has to grip the depths of your heart, and you must know fear for Christ. Fear of God must be restored to the church in this hour. If, I'm just going to yak for a second, but but listen to me. If what we do is fear criticism from culture, what, what you place your fear in, you will worship. Okay? So if we fear culture's criticism, then Caleb will be terrified to ever talk about abortion. But if I fear God... I am terrified to not talk about abortion. And, and if, if innocent life is fundamentally holy to God, I don't want to spend my whole life just looking away from the murder of in, the innocent because I'm afraid of what society might say. Society is, is not my God. And I don't just mean that I don't want their affection. I mean, I don't fear them. I don't fear them. And so just, just, just hash it out. If, if all we want is the approval of people, we will begin to embrace, and y'all forgive me because this feels controversial, um, but I'm talking about us, okay? I'm not talking about anybody else around this city. I'm talking about you and me right now. This is an in-house conversation. If we start to run away from hard topics, such as sexuality issues that are happening in the world today, because we're afraid that we might offend people in our community and then they might no longer come to our church, we, we probably should be afraid that the Spirit would leave our church. Right? Like, we, we probably should be afraid of grieving the Spirit. You have to have, hear me, you have to have in your heart a terror, a holy fear of the day when you will stand before Jesus with fire in his eyes and give account for every idle word you spoke. The fear of God is the plumb line. It's the place where we find rhythm and balance. The fear of God is what allows me to look at all the storms of society and say, ah, you can just keep doing, call me what you want to call me, throw what you want to throw. You don't scare me like he does. It's the day that I stand before him that matters. I am terrified of him. Now, Again, I'm just going to bring some application and forgive me because this feels controversial, um, but it is my middle name after all. When we, got, when we got into the pandemic season and there was lots of conversations about what churches should or shouldn't be doing, what they should be saying or not be saying, we need to learn the lesson of the previous season. We cannot close down doors, run away, all hide under our covers because of any sickness or any ailment. We can use wisdom, yes. Okay, we can be wise but we cannot allow uh, uh, local officials to tell the church what the church should and should not do. I am not afraid that 
that does not mean that the elders and I won't gather and talk about what would be pleasing to Jesus in this hour. How do we, you know, if something takes place and we need to think a little differently, we will talk about how do we honor Jesus in this hour. But the elder and I, elders and I, primary question is how do we please Jesus? And the fear of Jesus, the responsibility, y'all hear me. We've got too casual of a Christianity. There is a responsibility of knowing the Lord. Judgment comes to the house of God first. There's a great weight on you. There's a call of God on this house. Not to just go week to week and lift our hands and shout and jump. There's a call of God on this house to transform this society by the power of the Spirit and the proclamation of Jesus' death and resurrection. And, and that's not just fun. That's also terribly holy. And, and, and we need to make sure that that, that that terror has settled over our hearts. Now, of course, we love God and he loves us violently. Right? We don't... He's not an angry father looking to whip us any chance he gets. But he is an all-consuming fire. And, and we don't want to, we will stand before him knowing that we've made mistakes, no doubt. And he'll wash us with his grace, and we, we'll get all that. But we don't want to stand before him and say, ah, we were scared of other people, and we'll make sincere mistakes. But we don't want to be intentionally disrespectful intentionally rebellious of the word of God. We don't want to intentionally recast Jesus in a more palatable light. We need to receive him as he is. You don't get to re- re- redefine him, repaint him. And, and I sure as God ain't going to. Because I'm going to have to look him in the eye one day. Fear. The fear of God. beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of wisdom. Now, I want to suggest that in the days to come, we're going to have more storms. There will be more chaos. I think, I'm not prophesying, I'm just telling you what I think. I think in the next 10 to 15 years, our nation is going to experience greater calamities. I think, again, this is just Caleb's thoughts, not prophecy. I think that war may be at the door. I think that um, churches, people, who don't fear the Lord, but fear economic collapse, fear war, that fear um, society's disapproval. Those churches have nothing to offer in seasons of calamity. I don't say that with condemnation because we want to pray that, that the whole church of Jesus comes into the fear of the Lord. Um, but if, if we fear God above all else, when calamity comes and um, war comes, or financial collapse comes, we will be steadfastly in pursuit of God, preaching the gospel, crying out for healing and deliverance. I think there's a day coming, again, I'm not prophesying, I'm thinking, I think there's a day coming when people are going to see their kids sick and maybe even sent to war, and they're going to be looking for a church that knows how to pray, not a church that knows how to throw a party necessarily. Parties are great, but we can't... Fear of God demands we pray. We need, we need the fear of God to be our plumb line, our, our steady force. I think that's what allows us to make wise decisions as culture rages. It's not to get popped around by everybody's opinions, but just to cast smiles on Jesus and the word of God and say, what pleases you right now? Nothing else matters. 
if the world loves me or hates me, celebrates me or spits on me, mocks me, the apostles would say, if the world whips us, kills us, apostles would say, it's our privilege to be whipped. To honor you, Jesus. How about on Palm Sunday we restore that? How about we welcome Jesus for who he is? The Jesus who stands on the bow of the ship and says, sit down and shut up. Who commands even natural forces with just the word of his mouth. The Jesus who will judge the living and the dead. The Jesus who is zealous for righteousness. Who is offended at times. Jesus is offended at times, grieved. And our greatest desire ought to be, in this house, Jesus, may you never be offended. May you be the cherished guest. There are things in us that offend you. Cut them away. Strip us. Purge us. You are the awesome, terrible, sovereign, omnipotent, yet gracious, merciful, loving bridegroom. Now, why don't you stand to your feet? We're going to move into a time of communion where we recognize his sacrifice for us. But I want to, I want to again, encourage you. Get some fear of God in your heart. If you're living in open rebellion right now, you're living in sin and you know it, man, repent. Today is the day of renewal. If you've dishonored him with your lips, repent. Confess your sin and get right with God today. He's worthy. He's so good. But he's not someone to be played with. The apostles were filled with fear. And they said, who is this? Who is this king of glory? Pastor Brad, come for us.